I don't mean to change the furniture, but uh, I need room to walk. Uh, I never like to be tied down. Those that know me, I don't stand still very often. And um, I'm learning I ignore my notes anyway, so we can probably put them the other side of the room for all I mind. And uh, yeah, so how are we? Good. How is God? God is good. Now, I'm going to jump right in this morning with an idea. I'm not going to talk about a theory or a principle. It's just an inkling, a notion, a, a simple idea. And here it is. What we see, we know. And what we know, we worship. Let me say that again. What we see, we know. And what we know, we worship. I'm going to expand a bit on that. Let's start with what we see with our natural eyes, what we gaze upon, what we look at, what we behold with our natural eyes. It influences what we think, what we feel, what we understand and what we know. Think about watching the 10 o'clock news. Um, I tend not to these days because I find the images a little bit too much of an interference with my sleeping. But if you think about what we see on the 10 o'clock news, the images, the reports, what we see with our natural eyes influences how we think and feel. But more than that, with supernatural eyes, what we perceive as the Holy Spirit enables, the word revelation, what the Holy Spirit brings to our understanding, what we see supernaturally, that too influences what we think and what we feel, what we understand and what we know. So what we see, we know. Likewise, what we know, what we understand and what we believe, what we believe to be right or wrong or good or bad or false or true, all these things help us to understand our faith, underpin how we live our lives. And when it comes to what we give our time to, what we choose to honour, what we choose to respect, what we worship flows out of what we know. So simply, we, what we see, we know. What we know, we worship. With me so far? Great, that's my opening idea. Here's my opening prayer, and I'll pray it, but first I'll say it. I want to pray this morning that God would open our eyes, that he would open our eyes to see and to know, and not simply opening our eyes to see and know good things, but we would open our eyes to see and know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, that we would see him this morning seated on the throne. We have the hindsight of scripture, but we also have the foresight of the Holy Spirit at work in us. So my prayer this morning is that God would open our eyes to see Jesus. More than that, that we would know in our hearts, we would know in our hearts that Jesus Christ loves us, that he loves us with an unfailing, overwhelming love and grace and mercy, and that we would know that this morning because God has revealed it. And lastly, I want to pray that we would encounter something more of God this morning, something of his presence, his spirit, and we've already sung that we would come into his presence and that we would see God's glory, that we would encounter something of him and that we would respond in the only way we know how to, which is to respond in worship. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active, that it is full of life and hope. And Lord, we ask, would you send your Holy Spirit? Would your Holy Spirit not just be on my lips and upon the ears of those that hear, but Lord, would your Holy Spirit dwell in us in such a way that our eyes would be opened this morning, that our ears would be turned to you, and that our hearts would turn and respond to all that you have for us this morning. 
Holy Spirit, would you move in this place as we choose to put our faith in your word and in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh. And Heavenly Father, would you pour your glory out afresh in this place? And would we find ourselves in no other place than to respond in worship, in surrender, in laying down all before the one who is worthy of it all? In Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we've already heard several times, is Palm Sunday. For those that are not familiar with the church calendar, Palm Sunday comes the Sunday before Easter, next week. And Palm Sunday has been celebrated for, I'm going to say, um, not quite millennia, but many centuries. Now, Palm Sunday wasn't really a thing in Jesus' day. We'll come to that in a minute. But Palm Sunday is in all four of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four Gospels, all feature the story of the triumphal entry, which is what Palm Sunday is based on. And what's interesting is there's very few stories that are in all four Gospels. So the fact that it's there, it's one of 10 or 11, means it must be important to us. So today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, we're going to celebrate something that Jesus kind of inaugurated. He started, as it were, on the day that we're going to look at in a minute. And I want us to try and picture ourselves. So we need to go back 2,000 years. I don't know how your imagination is. Mine's not great, but we're going there anyway. 2,000 years ago, we're going to ancient Israel. In fact, we're going to Jerusalem, a city on a hill. Well, actually, a city on seven hills, as it is. And essentially, we're going to a time called the Feast of Passover. It was a specific feast that the people of Israel were to hold. This one was held uh, once a year, but it was one of the three major feasts. And in the city of Jerusalem, in this week that we celebrate Palm Sunday, the beginning of the Passion Week, when Jesus goes to the cross, there was probably uh, tens of thousands of people, maybe they believe as many as 250,000 people, who were in the city, in a city that can only normally hold 25 to 50,000 people. So there was a lot of people there. And the story goes on, and you can read it in the Gospels, but the story goes on that Jesus is sat on a donkey, coming down the hill from a place called the Mount of Olives, which was kind of his Airbnb of the day. It was his go-to place to stay, and he loved being there. But on this particular day, he's on a donkey. He's riding down the hill towards the temple. Probably quite an ordinary sight in most days. Obviously, we're not used to seeing people, uh, donkeys stood before you like today. But generally, what you've got in the story is a picture here of Jesus coming into the city at a really key time. And what the scriptures say about the triumphal entry is something happened, something sparked in the crowds and the people. And they did several things. Firstly, they got their cloaks and they laid them on the ground like a pathway. And then they went and got palm branches from the palm trees and they cut them down and laid them on the ground, again, as a pathway. And he doesn't say in scriptures why they do that. But if you actually look a bit historically, a bit culturally, what would happen here is if a king or a ruler had gone and overtaken the land or had taken ownership of it, what would happen is you'd have this triumphal procession. As the king was coming in, it was a peaceful procession. And this is what we see here in the scriptures, it goes on to say that the people were singing Hosanna, which means save us, or save us now, or please save us, or please save us now. There's a sense of desperation in the word. But they're also saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the king. So whatever the people had seen with Jesus sat on a donkey, stirred in their hearts something more 
than what they could see in their natural eyes. They could perceive through spiritual eyes, I would say, more than what they saw in the natural. In fact, it's uh, amazing to think that normally when the king would come in, he'd be on a white horse, he'd be with an army or soldiers, he'd have robes and a royal crown. Jesus had none of this. None of this. In fact, scriptures imply that Jesus was of ordinary appearance, not looking like you and me. He'd be looking like a man from Nazareth in the first century. He'd be looking like a Jew, probably with long curly hair and a beard for all we know, but he would look no different to those of the day, just riding in on a donkey. And yet it was revealed to him that that day, he was their savior. He was their Messiah. And I didn't press the timer on my clock and I promised myself I wouldn't go along today. <laughs> it's a bit late now, Simon. Did you press it on yours, Jamie? Okay. Let's keep... I, I, I'm, I'm counting all, don't worry. You see, I want to go a bit deeper here. You see, I said that Palm Sunday wasn't a day that Jesus necessarily celebrated, but it was a special day. You see, it was what they call the 10th day of Nissan. It's not about cars, it's about months of the years. Nissan is the first month of the Jewish calendar. So it's the first month, I think it means miracles, but anyway, it means basically the first month of the calendar, the 10th day. That was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem on this triumphal entry. And I want us to go back to what that day meant, because that was in Jesus' Bible. That was in the scriptures of the day, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. And I actually want to go back. I'm going to read a little bit from Exodus chapter 12 in the small print version. <clears throat> Let me get the white passages. Very small print. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You can make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. That was actually from the ESV, by the way, for those who are interested. So essentially what we have here is about 1,500 years before Jesus. We're about 1446 BC, before Christ, about three and a half thousand years ago. And the people of Israel are in slavery. They're in Egypt. And basically the Pharaoh is not letting the people free. Now the story just before it is we've had nine plagues, nine signs that are saying to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then we come to this 10th final plague. It's the biggest, and I'm gonna say the worst of all. It's a plague of the death of the firstborn. And essentially what happens here is in the Passover story, the angel of death is coming over the people, over the land, and the firstborn in every house is gonna die. Unless, and here's the unless, unless the people take a lamb, they select it on the 10th day they sacrifice it on the 14th day and the blood of the lamb that they put, as it happens on the doorposts, less material, but they 
actually ugly material, wooden blood doesn't work for me, but anyway, they put the blood on the doorposts, and as the angel passes over the doorposts, if they see the blood, the angel passes over and doesn't bring death into the house. Now, what's amazing about this story is it's put in scriptures that every year the people of Israel were to celebrate this Passover. They were to select on the 10th day the lamb, a pure, spotless, without blemish lamb. Then on the 14th day, they were to sacrifice it. Hold that thought in your mind for a minute. So when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, on the 10th day of Nisan, the people are selecting the lambs. They're choosing this pure lamb for the sacrifice. And I want to put before us this morning, did God open the eyes of the people to see that this man on a donkey wasn't just any old man? This is why he was the saviour, the one who would be sacrificed, the one whose blood would be shed on a cross five days later on Good Friday. Maybe, just maybe, what they saw in the natural was added to by the supernatural revelation that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, that Jesus Christ is the pure, spotless, sinless Saviour to die for you and me. Let me put it as the, um, John the Baptist put. Um, John the Baptist said in 1 John, he said something along the lines of, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Jesus revealed on Palm Sunday. This is the Jesus revealed in the scriptures as the one who would come to be not just the Passover sacrifice, but the sacrifice of, a, of atonement. For at one moment, when Jesus is hanging on a cross, his blood is shed, not just for me, not just for you, but for every person who believes in him, their sins are taken away. That is worth celebrating. That is worth them laying down the jackets, laying down the, the branches, saying, Lord, save us. Come, save us. Because they knew his sacrifice was perfect once for all and led them into a relationship where they could worship the king. I love Palm Sunday, don't get me wrong, but I love better what it points to. You see, Palm Sunday is the beginning of the Passion Week. It's on the first day where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But actually, you have to step all the way past the Passover meal on Thursday. I'm going to get off the stage. To Good Friday. You have to get to Good Friday, to where Jesus humbled himself to death, death on a cross, that he would be exalted, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians 2. And again, you have to go past, what do they call Sad Saturday? Is there a name for Sad Saturday? Okay, nothing happens on Saturday. Yeah, I don't know, Eat a chocolate egg day, whatever it is. You have to come all the way to Easter Sunday, to the point where the tomb is now opened, where Jesus is resurrected because he was sinless, because he was a pure spotless son, because he was the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. Because of all that, Jesus is resurrected and now sits at the Father's right hand. Do I get a yes and amen to any of this? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Palm Sunday. This is the good news for every day of the week. Not the 10th of Nisan only, every day of the week. Jesus wants us to know that good news, that he died for you and I, and that he's resurrected. But the story doesn't end there, does it? 
No, we've got a bit more to go. You see, what I want us to see now is where is Jesus sat today and now? And for that, we have to go to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. And Revelation's a great book. It's written by John the Disciple. He was one of the few disciples that wasn't martyred. Um, he wasn't killed at a young age. But when he was older, he was locked up, I think on an island somewhere, under Patmos. Forgive me on the detail on that one. But he was locked up, on the um, locked up, and he had what was seen as a revelation, a revelation through the Holy Spirit. And it's in our benefit. The Bible says that if we read and understand Revelation, then we too are blessed. And I want to say that there's a blessing in here for us today. So Revelation, I'm just going to read chapters, uh, chapters 5 and verses 11 to 14. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Come back to my original thought. What we see, we know. What we know, we worship. You see, here in this picture here that we have from John, we see a picture in heaven where it says the lamb who was slain. That is Jesus. He was the one who was slain. He was the one who gave his life for you and I. He is no longer dead but is seated in heaven on the throne, exalted with the Father. Because he humbled himself, he has been exalted to the highest place. And this is what I love. I love it. It says, worthy are you. Worthy are you. And it says seven things. Seven's quite a big thing in Revelation. So there's seven things of which Jesus is ascribed to be worth. He's worth all the power all the power and heaven and earth and under the earth is ascribed to Jesus. He is worth all the power. He is worth all the wealth. I don't know about you, if you're struggling around for a few pennies in which to give, God is worth all of it. Every penny, every pound, all the wealth, all the riches are due unto him. All is to be ascribed to Jesus. He's worthy of all wisdom. There is no greater, better, higher, more improved wisdom than Jesus Christ. All we need to do is cry out and ask for his wisdom as the Holy Spirit gives. He is worthy of all strength. It might not be a strength that we recognize, the white horse, the king on the throne. Jesus' strength came from his humility that he was prepared to be obedient to the Father's will, sacrificing his life, and because of that, he was exalted. Strength doesn't always mean might and force, though it does in his case, it may also mean humility and power. Jesus is worthy of this. Jesus is worthy of all honour. All honour. There's no higher, better, more powerful honour than Jesus' honour. And yet so often, it's not easy to honour him with our lips or with our lives or with our choices. But he's worthy of it. 
He's worthy of all glory. Originally, this message started off on the message just about glory, and it kind of got a bit of a rewrite, but there's so much to understand about the glory of God, the weightiness, the presence, the power of God outworked. Jesus is worthy of all glory. All glory. And he's worthy of all blessing. Jamie spoke already about the joy we have as Christians, that we can bless and speak life. Jesus is worthy of all blessings, every blessing. This is the one who is seated on the throne. And I simply say again, we need to recognize what Jesus is worth. We need to recognize what Jesus is worth. Because when we recognize what he's worth, we're likely to give him what he's worth. We're likely to say he's worthy of all and worship him. So I'm going to cycle back around once more, and believe it or not, I'm actually going to ask the worship team to come back. We're going to have a short message because I want to give more time to respond this morning. What we see, we know. What we know, we worship. So I'm going to ask a question is, what do we see this morning? What do you see this morning? Do you see Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? Do you see him not simply on the cross, not in the tomb, not ascended, but seated at the Father's right hand? Do you see Jesus this morning? And if you do, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Have you accepted that he is the one worthy to give your life to? And I'm going to ask again, do you know all that Christ has done for you? All that he is worth? That he's worth all of the power, the wealth, the wisdom, the strength, the honour, the glory and the blessing? I probably could have done this message in 30 minutes at half speed, by the way. So I hope you're still with me. But most of all, what I hope is that it's not (laughs) Balaam's donkey stood before you talking this morning, but actually you get that revelation of Jesus sat on a donkey coming into town and that you can fall before him, that you get the vision of Jesus on the cross who died for you, that you get the vision, the sight, the revelation of Jesus on Easter Sunday and then Jesus now exalted on the throne. Because if you see Jesus in any of those positions, I think there is no other response but to fall face down like the elders did in worship. And we all have our own face-down moment. Um, It could be in your chairs, it could be at the front, whatever it is. God is worthy of your worship this morning. So I'm going to pray. I actually want us just to sit quiet for one moment, if that's okay. I don't want us to rush straight into the first song, but I just want us to give space in the room for the Spirit of God to open our eyes. Is that okay? Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you open our eyes to see? Holy Spirit. You know, we can't manufacture the presence of God. 
we can't make it happen. But I believe for some, maybe you sense that God is knocking on the door. The scripture has uh, this sense of Jesus knocking on the door of our lives, asking us to open the door and let him in. I'm going to boldly say, if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you feel him knocking on the door, don't go another day without opening it. I'd love to stand with you, to pray with you, to share with you out of the scriptures. Today's been brief, but I'd love to share why Jesus gave his life for you and how much he loves you and what that means for you today. If you don't know Jesus, come and talk to me at the end or whoever brought you, come and just allow God to open the door in your life. But more than that, we're just going to wait a moment longer because I believe God wants to well up in this place a sense of his glory, his presence, his power, and his spirit as we enter into a time of worship together. Let's just wait a moment longer, if we may. Spirit, would you come open our eyes to see Jesus exalted, seated on the throne. And as we come in this time of worship, sung worship, but more importantly, with hearts surrendered, worship is an expression of our accepting that Jesus, you're above it all, and we surrender to you. So as we enter into this time of worship, would you inhabit our praises? Yes, but Lord, would you come be present with us? Would we encounter more of you? Would we encounter your love and your grace? And would we respond in worship, we ask? In Jesus' name. Amen.